Greetings, I'm Bishop Aaron Williams. You listen to Bishop Presents Kingdom Builders. Kingdom Builders are sermons that are preached and taught from My Father's Business Fellowship Church in Kirby, Texas. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please share and subscribe. God bless you. Remember to always be about the Father's business. Bishop Presents Kingdom Builders on demand right now. to do something I love to do, and that's actually talk about theology. I know half of you just gave me the spiritual eye roll. It's okay. I'm going to do it in a a fun way. You're going to love it. Promises, promises, right? Today, we're going to start five things you need to know about the gospel of Mark. One thing you you probably should know, it's not a thing you need to know, but it's the shortest gospel, which means you can read it faster. And nobody. Okay, all right. So scholars generally agree that the book of Mark is the oldest gospel, written between 40 and 70 A.D. It appears to be the backbone of which Matthew and Luke build upon with their personal accounts as well. And then John, well, John just gets to do what he wants. It's my namesake. John does what he wants. John doesn't do what he wants. John does what his wife allows him to do. Okay, but what we find in this earliest known written recollection of Jesus Christ is that Mark is showing radical changes that Jesus is bringing to the understanding of what it meant to actually be a Messiah. Up until this point, Jewish tradition had always taught that since the Messiah was of David's line, that he would physically overthrow any Israeli ruler, any outside influence, and establish a physical kingdom, because that's what David had. He had a physical kingdom. Jesus changes all of that. He was a world ruler, but not a worldly ruler. Amen? Make sure you understand the difference between a world ruler and a worldly ruler. Jesus was not interested in the violent overthrow of Rome. Jesus was interested in the radical overthrow of the sin nature that lives inside of you and me. Mark is an argument into why Jesus is Messiah in the face of the powerful naysayers of the time. It just so happened at that time, it was the Jewish culture. Now, has there been naysayers since? Absolutely. See, the naysayers of Jesus, similar to the kingdom of God, knows no culture or bounds. Jesus' predictions were very unpopular. One of his most unpopular traditions, or his most unpopular prediction, was that he predicted the destruction of the temple and not the glory of Jerusalem. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, not its glory. And that's not what itching ears wanted to hear. And you'll see that as we go through Mark, that even at times his disciples don't understand. That's because they've been raised in a culture that has taught them what a Messiah should be. The problem is that culture never bothered to ask the Messiah what a Messiah 
should be. The first thing you need to know about Mark is that he seeks to explain the Messiah must be a suffering Messiah and not what people expected. You may not understand this now, but at the time it was an extremely unpopular look. And if you see how the disciples in Christ are treated around the establishment throughout all of the Gospels, it makes it very clear how, just how unpopular this message was. When tradition gets thrown on its head, it becomes very unpopular. So let's begin. First, I want to talk about something called the messianic secret. Have you ever heard that phrase? The messianic secret? So in Mark, there are instances where Jesus will perform a miracle or fulfill something messianic, and then he tells his people not to tell anyone. That's a weird thing to do, isn't it? I mean, if, I mean, you're the Messiah. You have this power. Why wouldn't you want people to know? Mark 1, 44, or sorry, 41 through 44, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. A good question here is why? Why would Jesus want to hide this? Jesus did this because if society focuses on the miracle, they will miss the point of salvation. If, society, if we as a church focus on the music, or we focus on the fog machine, or we focus on who's up here preaching, or we focus on who shows up to our church, we are missing the point. We're being focused on the peripheral. Jesus not only fulfills every prophecy of Scripture, but at the time radically changes the concept of Savior, eternal King. The eternal king is not an earthly ruler. This was a shock to the community, to the Jewish community around them. You see, if we focus on the acts and the things that we do, we're going to miss the why. And a lot of people struggle in their life because they don't have a why. Why do you do the things that you do? This is why at times you will even see the disciples cannot understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying. The ones that live with him day in and day out will struggle with this. And so do you think you won't struggle with the reality of the Messiah? I struggle. I have definitely said to myself, Lord, I wish you'd just show up. I wish you would just take care of this. I wish you would just prove to the world you are who you are, because it would make my job way easier. But what's that about when we talk like that? That's about me. I don't want to do the work. Lord, I want you to show up and fix it. I want you to take care of it. And you think the disciples didn't do the same thing with Jesus? Well, we're going to talk about it. They had to unlearn their idea of Messiah that their, their community had been teaching them. 
do you think that's easy? Do you think it's easy to unlearn years of things that you've been taught? That's very difficult. I, in, in a lot of ways, I see myself very blessed because I, I, came, I came to Jesus much later in life. And so concepts for me, there, there's no pa- I don't have to unlearn from my past. Some people have been in really bad situations in churches and have to unlearn things from previous places. Can you imagine how hard that is to unlearn and to relearn? So imagine, I mean, that's just a couple of years in a church. Imagine generationally, this is what Messiah is going to be. And Jesus says, no, you're very wrong. That is not what's going to happen here. Jesus is proclaimed the Son of God. He's referred to as the Son of God, not including demons. So demons do refer to him in that way. But in the Gospel of Mark, he's referred three times as the Son of God. What we see here is Mark focusing on the markers of the new understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And you're going to see as we go through these, you're going to find friction with the community around him. So the first one is at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit, like a dove, descended upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Now, it's another, another thing we like to call that is a Trinitarian verse. That is a verse in Scripture where all three parts of the Trinity are present. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends. God the Father speaks. All three, one place. But also, what we see here is Jesus being baptized into his earthly role. What we find even more fascinating than that is that God is accepting that role. What is that role? This is an indicator that Jesus' brand of Messiah was the correct one. To God the Father was pleased. If God the Father is pleased in it, then it is what? It is good. If God the Father is not pleased in it, what is it? It is not good. It's one of the hard things about living the life under the Messiah. So we don't really do gray area. We are either in a state of salvation or we are not. We are either doing the works of Christ, we are doing the things we are called to do, or we are not. There is no middle ground here. But what we find is that God is accepting what this concept of Messiah is going to be. Early on, the suffering Messiah for the world's sin was acceptable to God, but it was not acceptable to the establishment of the time. Already here, very early in Mark, in the first chapter, we start to see the wedge being driven between Christ and the establishment of the time. Now, do you think that doesn't happen today in churches, in governments? We see the wedges. As soon as we start to speak about our Messiah as a suffering Messiah who is concerned with the hurting, 
you're going to find division. It's going to hurt. Do you think it didn't hurt here? Do you think that once this happened, we had a happily ever after scenario where Jesus and the disciples walked out of the river and everything was grand until he went and got crucified? No. It only gets worse from here. The divide only gets bigger. We find, here's an interesting fact. We find in baptism in the early church is heavily associated with the crucifixion. Did you know that? Did you know that was something, especially early on, that was very heavily associated with the death of Christ? Think about it. So Paul later writes in Romans 6, 3, and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Look at what happens when we baptize. We dunk, right? In the CMA, we dunk. We don't sprinkle, right? We dunk, right? Dead to sin, alive to Christ, right? I know somebody went to a Christian preschool. I had to learn that in seminary. But that's the point. Do you, do you see the similarity? Baptism into Jesus, what does that mean? Baptism into Jesus means being dead to yourself. Let me say that again for you. Baptism into Jesus means being dead to yourself and doing what Christ commands, not what you feel like is the right thing to do. Now, that sounds really easy coming from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but I guarantee you tomorrow, when I have to wake up at 5.30 and go to work, I'm going to be a little frustrated with some people when I get to work, especially before I've had coffee. Alex can tell you that. He's worked with me. If I don't have my coffee, no one talks to me. But why? That's because that's what John wants. That's what John wants. John needs his coffee. You need your space before people talk to you. Do you know what you need? Do you know what I need? I need the grace of God. And I need to do what Christ has commanded me to do. It's that simple. But we make it difficult. It ain't that simple. We don't let it be that simple. Many people look for the symbol of baptism in their lives, but they don't want what it symbolizes in their life. It's just like a lot of people like to come to church, but they don't want to do church. Do you know what I mean? They don't want to do church outside of here. They just kind of want to come here and get a feeling and feel good and then move on. Let's get a feeling. It's all about the feels. Right? Wrong. There is a noticeable understanding of baptism into Christ except means accepting Jesus' brand of Messiah, not the Messiah you think we need. Jesus' brand of Messiah is a suffering Messiah who is willing to die for you, who humbles himself at the cross even though he's the creator of the universe. That is Messiah. Oh, Lord, I wish, I wish you would just come down and make these people love you. I wish you would come down and, and make the government do the Christian thing. That's not the Messiah you're going to find. It's coming, I assure you, but that is not the Messiah that came to the earth. Why? We should be, and you may follow me on this, you may not, 
we should be thankful that Christ hasn't returned yet. How many people are going to suffer if Christ were to return right now? I can count countless people in my life that I truly care about that would suffer right now. And you know what's even crazier than that? What if, just throw, throw this out there, what if Jesus actually came as conquering Messiah the first time and actually set an earthly kingdom, what would have happened to us? See, the problem is now there's no sacrifice. Now there's no atonement. So yeah, we've got Christ's kingdom on earth, but we don't have salvation. And so what happens when we die? We don't get to live in the kingdom of heaven anymore because there's no salvation. Because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's almost like Jesus had a plan here. Weird. Weird. Many people look at this symbol, but they don't want it in their life. I want to get baptized, but I don't want to live baptized. I want to get saved. I don't want to live saved. And that's because we have a misunderstanding of what a Messiah is. And then we start to misunderstand everything else. Because guess what? Without that linchpin, everything starts to fall apart. Amen? Without Christ, there's no church. Mark 10, 35 through 39. James and John. It's actually who me and my brother are named after. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Let me just stop right there. See, at, in, at the first point, I'm really proud that, that that's my namesake. And then my namesake opens his mouth. And I'm not so, I'm like, ah, would you really say that to a savior? Ah, this is God you're talking to. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Does anybody see anything wrong with that? See, once again, what are we focused on? We're focused on me, my place in the kingdom. How frustrated do you think Jesus really was with his disciples? All the time. All the time. Because they say things like this. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, there's the problem. We want all the frills. We want to sit at the right hand of the Father. We want to sit at the right hand of Jesus. We don't want to be crucified for it. We don't want to be whipped for it. We, as a Western culture, can barely handle when people talk about us on Facebook. Barely. People get lost in their fit. Oh, he said something so mean to me on Facebook, I'm crushed. There's no whip. You're not being nailed to a cross. The reality is you're not ready. You're not able to do that. And although we may never actually say, well, Lord, I want to be at the right-hand side. You know, we're so, I got, man, Pastor John did never ask me to preach. He never asks me to, man, I, I wanted to be on the advisory committee and he didn't call me. You see what that's all about? That's all about you and what you want. 
and the power that you are seeking. Here's a surprise for you if you didn't know this. Christ is not interested in seeking power. He already has it. He doesn't need your piddly power. He doesn't need anything. He desires for you to follow. And if that means, if that means vacuuming the carpet, then guess what? That's what you're going to do. If that means coming up here and running your mouth, that's what you're going to do. Everything you do is for God's glory. So do it happily. Even if you have to do this while you're doing it. Because you're so angry, you're gritting your teeth, and it looks like you're smiling. You see, we want the title of Christian. We want the power that's associated with being a Christian. But we don't want to do the Christian things. Heaven forbid it actually got into our heart and out into the community. Heaven forbid if the capital C church actually did that. What would happen? We don't want to do that. But we want the title. We want the pew seat. That's what we look for. And do you find that you yourself are driving a wedge between what the Messiah actually is and what you think he is? The point I'm trying to make is humans are, are, our MO just stays the same. We're no different. How do we correct that? It's this, it's this awesome word called repent. You think I don't have to repent from stuff like that? Do you think... Yeah, I'll share this. Do you think it's easy for me to sit here with no actual governing board and not get a power trip? Do you think, do you think that never happens? Do you think John's just a saint? John never, never gets puffed up and, well, it's, it's my church. Yeah, I've said that before. It's my church. Is it my church? No, it's not my church. The shepherd doesn't own the sheep. The pastor doesn't own the flock. It's a blessing to be here. But it's not a requirement. That can be removed. If I leave, does the building go with me? Do the people go with me? No, because they're not mine. They belong to Christ. So I have to repent of those things. I struggle with that. Who wouldn't? It's very tempting. Very tempting to sit in that office. It is. We all struggle with our own issues in relation to that. Humans, by your sin nature and your flesh, will desire power. And that's why it would be so much easier if Jesus was just interested in power on earth. Because then we could sit at his right and left side and have a pecking order. But that's not the Messiah you're looking for. If that's the Messiah you're looking for, this ain't the place for you. The Messiah is a suffering Messiah who suffered for you. Do we really want the baptism that Jesus was given and the cup he took from? Is that what you really want? Think about that. Because I'm telling you right now, it is actually happening all over the world. North Korea, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia. It is happening People are getting the opportunity to drink the cup. Would you be ready to drink the cup? 
A lot of times I think we don't, we don't really know what we're asking for. This is not a baptism of hurt feelings. This is a baptism of suffering in the name of the one who suffered for you. You are not in a baptism of fire if you're on a Facebook beef. You're having a discussion. And how you respond in that discussion has consequences. Did you know that? Has consequences for that. How you treat people outside of the faith has consequences. Good and bad. Do you want to be a symbol or do you want to be symbolized? Do you want to be someone that, some, that, that someone outside of the body looks at and goes, wow, he has a really nice tie on. He's got a gold chain with a cross on it. Must be a Christian. Has to be. Has to be. Or do you want to be the person where people look at you and go, what is wrong with him? Both his parents die in a car accident. It was two weeks ago. He's smiling. Why? What is wrong with him? That's probably the biggest thing that people say about me. It's probably not all to do with Christianity or the fact that I love Jesus, but I get that a lot. What is wrong with you? That's because a world that seeks power is not going to understand a, a faith that seeks suffering. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. Do you want to be engaged or do you just want to sit on the sideline? Do you want to be engaged in the body or would you rather just get your pennant and wave it from the sideline? Go Christians. That's boring. Come on, get in the fight. Get in the trenches with me. Let's go. Christ's messiahship is radical and it is radically different than expected. Are you ready for that? It's easy to go, oh, yes, pastor, I'm ready. I'm ready for that radical Messiah. Are you, though? Are you really ready? Are you really ready knowing that if you go down this path, it has ended in death? It has ended in suffering? This side of glory. Are you, ready? Are you really ready for that? Or does someone say something bad about Jesus on Facebook and you, you just can't? can't do it anymore. I can't even deal with that person. Well, it's a good thing Christ didn't treat us that way. When, he didn't treat me that way when I was saying things like that. It's radical. Are you ready? The second place, <clears throat> at Jesus' transfiguration, what occurs just before the transfiguration is very important to that moment. Right before that, Mark 8, 27 through 29. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter has revealed the true nature of Christ. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now, is he wrong? No, Peter is spot on. And did that come from him? Did he learn that on his own? No, he learned that from the Holy Spirit. Or that inward, upward thing we're always 
pushing around, right? It's occurring right here. Peter acknowledges Christ as Messiah, but look at the next few verses. Peter acknowledges it, but does he understand what type of Messiah Christ is? Let's, let's continue. Mark 8, 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, if you believe that this was the Messiah, I would think that everything comes out, that comes out of his mouth at this point is gold. If you truly believe that this is the Messiah, what the next things that come out of his mouth from then on, he's God. Is that what Peter does? No. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> you, Jesus, come here. Look, listen. Come, buddy, you're wrong. I think my face would melt off my body if I said, I don't even think I could say that. <laughs> but I didn't grow up like Peter did. I didn't grow up thinking that the Messiah was going to conquer and stop the suffering of my nation on earth. I didn't grow up like that. But turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but men. Have you ever done that? You're not setting your mind on God's interests but your interests. Well, you know, guys, I'd like to see 300 people in here. Not because I want them to come to Christ, but because I want to do a Facebook Live and it looks kind of empty in here and I'm going to look dumb. You know, I've heard that. Someone has said that to me. Not here. So relax. Stop looking around. People think like that. Why? Because they are after a Messiah of power. Of power on earth, not a suffering Messiah. And I'm telling you, that's what Scripture is calling out. That's what Jesus is. After his revealed he is Messiah, Jesus begins to plainly explain that he will suffer and die and rise again. He will be radically different than what the disciples are expecting. He's telling them to their faces, and what happens? Peter rebukes. That's because Peter, like many of us, having a hard time understanding what Messiah actually means, it does not mean the overthrow of the current world. It does not mean the overthrow of your current situation. You are still going to have to struggle with your sin nature and the fallen world around you. That is not the Messiah. The Messiah gives you the strength to accomplish those things. Not to just take it away from you so you can have an easier life. But a suffering Messiah who wishes to meet you where you are. Sometimes I think many Christians don't want to accept that they want a Savior that will tear down the terrible not one that will suffer and promise us something that is eternal. We want, we want a savior of right now. Fix this right now. I'm in pain. We don't want the savior of farther along. You guys remember that song? Farther along? Two, three. Okay, I'm not alone. It's a real song. Okay. It's in this uneasiness the transfiguration occurs. So this has occurred and then the transfiguration happens. Mark 9, 2-7, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain. Do you notice he takes the people who had the biggest problem understanding what was going on? 
right? This is Mr. Right side, left side, and then Mr. I'm going to tell Jesus what for, right? These are the three people that get to see this. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Wow. But then what happens? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. What are Peter, James, and John already starting to do as soon as he transfigures? Here he is. We're going to build a tabernacle. The revolution's beginning. We're going to start overthrowing Rome right now. Let us make a tabernacle. Let us go back to the way things were. He's going to fix it all right now. Is that what happens? No. Because this is not a Messiah interested in earthly power. This is a Messiah interested in the power to change your life. Do you see even in this moment the desire to mold the Messiah into something else? A conquering hero or the next king of Israel. Do you see it? Do you see, do you see the tension here in Mark? Do you think that tension still doesn't exist today in the church? It does. We must be careful not to attempt to make Jesus something he is not. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus isn't a conservative. He's not a liberal. Jesus is the truth. Period. How people choose to conform around that is their business. But as Christians, we know or should know Jesus Christ is the truth. That's it. Should that affect how you act politically, how you act in your job? Absolutely, it should affect that. But Jesus didn't show up to save countries. He didn't save Israel. He didn't save the old kingdom. He came here to save you, the person. John, the person. Because nations fade away. A soul is eternal. So shouldn't we be thankful he's more interested in the eternal than the temporal? We should. But are we? No, you know, just we just wish Jesus would come. I, this irritates me when I hear it. I just wish Jesus would come back. I'm just tired of the way things are going in this country. That's not the answer. Do you understand the consequences of that answer? That's not the answer. Why don't we come out of here and start loving the community and letting them find out that we're actually really weird and tell them why we're weird? Why don't we do that instead of wishing for the end like some lame deer lying in the bush? I don't know. We must be careful not to attempt to make Jesus something he's not. Now pay close attention to how this ends. Mark 9, 9. As they were coming down from the mountain... He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Hmm. What I see here is acceptance of the true nature of Jesus as Messiah. Because guess what they didn't do? For the first time in this book, the disciples, instead of rebuking Jesus, are listening to him. 
Sometimes we need a transfiguring moment where we see Jesus for what he truly is, the suffering Savior and the Messiah, and not just the guy we pray to when we want something. You need a transfiguring moment in your life. Jesus can provide that transfiguring moment. Can you provide it on your own? You cannot. So those are the first two times. You notice the first two times, it's God the Father that actually says, this is my son. This is my son. This one I find probably the most interesting, at Jesus' crucifixion. What did the sign above Jesus on the cross read? King of the Jews. Now, was that written because the people that put him up there really believed that? No, it was a mockery, right? But it tells us a lot of why the people thought he was up there. They thought he was up there because he was a rebel, because he believed he was a king on earth. Now, we know from other places in Scripture, when he, especially when he talks to Pilate, he specifically says what? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It appears even Rome had decided that this man was attempting to become a revolutionary to overthrow Rome. But it is not the Messiah Jesus was to be. And after the example of his death, a Roman soldier, almost assuredly a pagan, says this, Mark 15, 38, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely... This man was the son of God. Now I can tell you almost immediately in his sentence, he doesn't believe in the Judeo-Christian God. He doesn't believe in Jesus as a God. Because he says was. Right? Was the son of God. Meaning he, he believed that Jesus dying was the end. I find it very interesting how God says he's the son of God and the unbeliever says he's the son of God, but no disciple except Peter one time even mentions Messiah or son of God. Can you understand now why Jesus is so frustrated with his disciples? They don't get it. They're about to, I assure you, they're about to get it. You see, by example, Christ proved he was the suffering Messiah, dying for the sins of a world that didn't understand him, a world that rejected him. My question is simple. Do you accept Christ as Messiah on his terms, or do you accept him on your terms? Because I will tell you this, the way you accept Christ as Messiah is going to affect how you outwardly look at the world. If you're only going to accept Christ as Messiah on your terms, how dangerous can that be? That is so dangerous because now we can say, well, you know, Jesus is only interested in the United States. All the rest of these countries, they're worthless, worthless people. That's where that can go. If we only accept Jesus on our terms. Well, the funny thing is Jesus isn't interested in your terms. Jesus is interested in your soul. Jesus is interested in the, sa in the salvation of what? The world. For God so loved who? The world.
We don't get to give Jesus the ultra perm and the thin lips and say Jesus is a white man. Can't do that. We also don't get to say, well, Jesus was Jewish, so he must not be interested in anyone else. We won't get to do that either. That's you trying to accept Jesus on your terms, not what's in the scripture. Jesus came to save the world. Amen? Do you believe that? Then we have to act like that. Mark provides us a framework of a suffering Messiah that will die for us, that will save us. Not a carnal ruler, but a perfect and everlasting Messiah. The kingdom of Israel is gone. Jesus still remains. At some point, there is no Israel. It's simply Palestine. Guess what? Jesus is still here. The nation of Israel comes back. Wars are fought. Boundaries change. Guess who's still here? The suffering Messiah. The Messiah that atoned for your sins and mine. And that's the first thing you need to know about the gospel of Mark. You have a suffering Messiah who bled and died for you and rose again as the firstborn. And now we all have everlasting life.